To be devoted to Christ means to be devoted to his work and his purpose on earth. It means to be devoted to what he has called you to, what he has accomplished in you, and what he has purposed for you to be part of for your own good, and to be part of for the glory of God to be declared. And it is why at the end of our passage in Hebrews, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Let us think about, let us purpose how we best serve Christ together. Not neglecting to be together, but encouraging one another all the more, being part of the gathering. And so as we think about what does it mean to be devoted as a member, uh, as we're talking about that as Faith Bible Church, we want to think what does it mean then to be a member at Faith Bible Church Menifee? And maybe many of you wish we would have just started here. Could you just explain what your membership program is and so I can either decide whether I sign up for the benefits or not? And I hope that's not the heart you have anymore. I hope you feel uh, what is clearly biblical is that we're not trying to sign you up for our business. We're trying to lock arms together as Christians to be about God's business. Uh, we want a purpose in that. Membership is not about signing up so you can get benefits. It's about being a part of what Christ has already accomplished in the way he has planned and purposed for it to be accomplished. But there is... A need and communication of what does that mean then so if we agree to all this theological truth how does that practically function as a church what does the devotion of the church mean well for us at faith Bible Menifee that means we define our relationship to the members of Menifee in devotion to Christ and covenant what it means to say I'm pursuing as a member of faith Bible Menifee is to commit to Christ in all things, which should be true for all Christians, uh, that you want to live for him, you want to glorify him with everything you do. And we articulate that in seven points, uh, which is a brief summary, not all-encompassing, uh, but we're trying to be faithful to make it clear and, and brief for us to understand. And those seven points, this is our member covenant. You'll see here that this includes a lot of what it means then to pursue Christ and what it means to pursue Christ together as a local church. This covenant is written for purpose, intentionally, uh, to help us define who we are purposed with. Why should we participate together as members and have a covenant where we've made promises and intentions together, not just to Christ, but together that we would pursue Christ? Why would we do that? Well, I want to encourage you, it's important that you prioritize relationships in your life. It is important that you have priorities in relationships. Uh, it is part of us recognizing that we are not God, right? Have you ever had someone uh, say to you, or maybe you've said to someone, you're not Jesus, you can't do all of this. At times we seek and we try to live as though all of the commands of scriptures we have to apply to every person in every circumstance at every time to go and pursue that to be faithful to Christ in all of those things to anyone that comes in my path. In one sense, that is true, but in another very real sense, you must make decisions of priority of how you live out the commands of Christ. Let me give you a, an example. I have neighbors who I love, Matt and Emily, and they have six children. I know their names, but I won't list them for the sake of time because they are prolific breeders as we are, so six children is a long time to say. I probably could have done it in that amount of time. I should have just said their names. But their six children live right across the fence. They play with my children. I love their children very much. If one of those boys or girls got lost in the hills behind our house, if they could not find him, I would stop whatever I was doing to help Matt and Emily look for their children. 
I would immediately, whatever was going on at our home, I would stop because I love those kids. And I would go into the hills and I would help them look. But if it came to a point where there's weeks and months, I would be devoted to the cause, but not in the same way that Matt would. Matt's devotion to find his child would last until he had answers. He would pursue to see what happened to that child. Where is that child? What does he do? He would go after every means possible to find that. And while I might help him in that in any way I could, I could not devote my life to it in the way that he would. Why? Because I have five children of my own. I have a wife. I cannot pursue all things for everyone else. Your heart feels grieved. I know you're on Facebook and you see GoFundMes. You see all these things and you want to do what you can and, and you might, but you can't devote all of your life to that in the way that others do. You have to make priorities. You have to say, how do I apply these things? What happens is often we talk about the commands of Christ as in a broad, shallow way applying to all relationships and we fail to do it in any relationship. We end up mostly just talking about it and not living it out. So we are generally in shallow, well, maybe not shallowly, but in a shallow sense, kind to people, humble with people, gracious to people, but our relationships with them remain very shallow. We don't have committed time to really get into difficult things. And as a culture, uh, outside of family, we tend to be those that kind of bounce from relationships. And that's because we understand this function of priority. We say that family has a particular priority. This is a biblical truth. As you uh, look at 1 Timothy, you could write down the reference. I'm going to read it for you. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 8. It says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. And so we have in 1 Timothy 5, 1, a statement of you should treat older men how? Like you would a father. You should be respectful to them. So there is an assumption that you have a particular type or a respect or priority in relationship with a older man, a father, that should characterize the way you treat other older men. And likewise with mother, daughter, sister, uh, that there should be a priority in that. But as you continue in this passage in verse 3, we see a very practical part priority of the responsibility of families, which all of the world really gets. As, as much as some parts of our society are trying to destroy the nuclear family, there is a truth that the family is somewhere that must be prioritized. And most of all societies, unless they are rebelling against that, see that. So if you look with me again at 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting at verse 3, it goes on to a discussion about widows. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness, to show their household, and how to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her, her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But he who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
So we're not going to get into all the details about what that means with widows, but what I want you to see here is the priority in which Paul is stating. He's saying the church is to care for widows. What widows is the church to care for? How do they make those priority decisions? And Paul says, if they have any family left, let the family care for them. Let their parents, parents, you're going to love this. I hope kids are listening. Let children make a return to their parents as is right. Right? Let them provide for them. Let them be the ones that care for them. And he takes it to such an extreme in verse 8. He says, if anyone does not do this, does not provide for his own relatives. Right? This means a young man who does not care for not just his mother-in-law, but his grandmother-in-law. If he is not willing to take on that burden, it says he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If he won't take the responsibility of provision. There are many things we see here. The Bible does not proclaim things in such a way that nuclear families are eliminated. Right? It says that there's a priority there. God has a purpose and design. And we're going to get into that in the coming weeks in Ephesians 5. What he declares is there must be a priority. And I want you to remember this priority is communicated to the church also. Because what does it call the church? When these passages start, how do they start? They start with brothers. The church is called more than just brother and sister that have a similar shared DNA but live separately. They are called members of one another's bodies. That they share DNA. That they are connected in such a way that their devotion to one another is a devotion to Christ. To be devoted to someone else, just to have devotion to someone, might feel divine, but that doesn't make it divine. I'm not saying that being devoted in any relationship is divine, but the church is designed in such a way, and we are connected to one another in such a way, that as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we are united to Christ, that we must be devoted to one another. So as you think about the priorities that we've looked at, uh, you could look on your handout, if you have the, the larger handout, you could look back and look at those priorities on page 3, one another's from Scripture, which are commanded to live out one to another. You could also look back on page 4, Hebrews 13, 7. I'll state them now so you know where they are for later reference. Hebrews 13, verse 17. It talks about obeying leaders to submit to them that they are to keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account and let them do so with joy and not with groaning. So if we take the commands to one another's and the commands to leaders of what they're to do and to us as we're to submit to leaders, how do we functionally be devoted to those truths? Well, I appreciate as a leader uh, that let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. There's no advantage to you to take the commands of Christ and try to say, uh, how far can I stay from those commands? Rather than, how much can I lean into those commands? And so for the one another's of the church, if those things were commanded to show hospitality to, to love one another, to be generous with one another, to care for one another, to rebuke and to teach one another, to prioritize your life toward one another, who do you do that to? The church. The churches should be a priority in every Christian's life, and it functionally should be a priority, as we looked at last week, in the local church. Also, uh, we as leaders must have these kinds of priorities. 
Membership is important to us for that same illustration of my children and Matt's children. Who do I pursue? There are many people who come and visit our church. There are 90,000 plus people who live in Menifee. For us as elders, who are we pastors over? Who do we pursue? Who do we go after? Who do we have the responsibilities in which Christ has given us to care for souls? Are we pastors of the whole world? Do we need to start massive social media accounts and hope that we get as many followers as possible because we're responsible for all people? I don't believe so. I believe that's why God has designed local churches to function. And I believe that's the importance of membership in knowing who is committed to be faithful to this church, to be faithful to Christ as being part of a faithful member of this church. Who do we go after? Who do we pursue? And you might think, that's, that's not as important. Can't you just preach and love God and love people and let God handle the rest? And I would say yes, if we did not have very clear commands from God of what is our devotion to be to one another. So this is my plan for the rest of the morning. Let me read for you our church covenant, uh, what we commit as believers, what we read together as we do a membership meeting, and what we are covenanting together uh, for the purposes of Christ. And then at the last point, seven, it speaks of church discipline. And I want to spend the remainder of our time uh, teaching and, and speaking about what does that mean? Because it is one of the major reasons and needs for church membership. So if you look with me on your handout, on the, the first page of your handout, right there at the bottom, you have the Faith Bible Church Menifee Member Covenant. If you want to follow along, I'm going to start reading it from the preamble which makes very clear we are doing this because we're committed to Christ to live as he has called us, uh, to live longing for him and wanting to be accountable to what he's accomplished. And then seven points in which we say, this is what we are committing to together. So if you want to follow along as I read it, uh, starting right there at the beginning, under the authority of Christ, because of my love for him and my desire to obey his commands, aware of my own weakness and sinful condition, but resting in the hope of his abundant grace shown through the gospel as a member of his body in fellowship and covenant with the members of Faith Bible Church, I'm committed to living in obedience to the commands of the word of God, to living as a representative of Christ and his church in both word and deed because of the truth of the gospel and for the glory of God. I'm committed to caring for the members of Faith Bible Menifee as a member of Christ's body with genuine love regular prayer, encouragement, and hospitality. I'm committed to regularly gathering and pursuing to employ my gifts to serve his body. I'm committed to preserving the unity of our church and its public testimony through prayer, a godly lifestyle, and personal sacrifice, being committed not to teach or to advocate doctrine different than that which we've united around in our doctrinal statement. I'm committed to generously providing for the needs of this body, doing so with forethought and in proportion to what God has generously provided to me and giving with joy to the work of Christ for his glory. I'm committed to lovingly following the direction of our church and its leadership as they follow God's word. I will submit to honor God and to preserve the unity of his church for the joy and sanctification of Christ's body and my own body. I'm committed to sacrificially caring for the downtrodden and the oppressed representing the heart of Christ as a witness to Menifee in a watching world, 
to proclaiming the gospel and making disciples of all whom Christ calls to our body. I am committed to the practices of biblical church discipline, affirmed by this body and its leadership. Because I love Christ above all else, I ask that they will lovingly pursue me to repent from intentional disobedience against what Scripture teaches, even if I abandon my membership. In order to become a member, there are uh, five steps. Uh, just the path and the order in which you do this is one, you would listen to the membership series, which this morning is the end of. Uh, two, you would look at our doctrinal statement that we discussed last week and just have clarity over, is this, are these the things I would believe are true about the Bible? To have clarity over areas you would agree or disagree. Um, to write those out, to maybe think about things you hadn't thought about before that are included in our doctrinal statement. Three, you would be serving in some type of ministry of our church. That, would, that might mean set up or greeting. It might be being a part of a community group. Uh, but you would be a, a serving active member of our church already functionally showing that. We're not looking to make people members. We're looking to recognize who God has made a member of our church. And so you should be pursuing to be part of the church in that. Uh, you will email. This is... The, the, old, the ancient church didn't use email, but we're, you know, we're tech-savvy people. So uh, you will email info at menifeechurch.com, a, a membership form with your gospel, with the gospel. You don't have your own. The gospel written in your own words and your testimony. Uh, and then after that, there would be what we call a pre-membership meeting. Uh, so that would be one leader and an elder. An elder is always included in those meetings. Uh, and looking through questions that are on the membership form to discuss the truths of what it means to be part of the church. What does it mean to follow Christ? How does God save people? How do we handle missionaries? How do we handle finances? How do we handle church leadership? Reviewing all those questions, many things we've discussed already through the membership series. Uh, but to really sit down and allow you to ask questions. And these are sweet times. I, I love doing these meetings uh, because very seldomly, do I get the opportunity to sit down with members of our church and spend an hour or a little bit more uh, talking about things that really we value, really are purpose? We often have people in our home, um, but we have a lot of small talk, right? That's just life. So even if you're in my home for a couple hours, a lot of that is just going to be small talk. And then we might have opportunity when kids aren't screaming and other things aren't happening to talk about some, some things that really matter eternally and not just temporarily. But a pre-membership meeting is a time where we just really have that time devoted to discussing and encouraging one another and our purpose together as members. Uh, then that form would go to our next elders meeting and as elders, uh, whatever elder was there would just talk about, hey, this is how it went. Uh, this, is, this is what's there. Uh, we would share what was encouraging and then we would move forward with membership following that. So just so you have the practical steps of that. The commitment of that is what we just read. And maybe you noticed in the commitment of that, uh, in number seven, that we uh, are devoted to and practice church discipline. This is not something that's easy for a lot of the church in our society. Even those that would hold that there is a truth behind this, they, they don't have necessarily a publicly communicated way in which they go about this. Uh, it kind of randomly happens when really horrible things happen in the church. Leaders have to decide, how are we going to handle this? And by God's grace, most leaders, uh, even if they didn't know the word well, they go back to the word of God and they say, what do we do? What does God say about this? Praise God, he's been very clear about how we handle sin in the church. And church discipline is part of handling that. You might think of church discipline 
uh, often communicated as excommunication. It's an ancient word. I think as Protestants, we've kind of removed ourselves from it because it has some context with the Catholic Church and other things. Uh, but it is really cutting off communication or communion, removing them from the fellowship of the church. And as I want to show you this morning, that is part of church discipline, but that is not the whole. The whole of church discipline is not just waiting around to kick someone out of the church. That is never the goal of church discipline. That's not how you participate in church discipline. And one of our members' question, that's often the question is, uh, what do you believe about church discipline and what is your part in it? And many people answer that question and they say, I hope it never happens to me. And I, I like that answer. I get excited. And when I ask my kids a question, I go, I don't know. I always, my kids kind of roll their eyes now because I go, I'm so excited that you don't know because now I get to explain it to you. So I get excited when people answer that way because I, I want to help them to understand this is a part of functioning as the church. Your participation in discipline is important. It is a way that you show the glory and the grace of God. And it is not just waiting to kick someone out or waiting to get kicked out. So maybe you've come with some baggage from church experiences or life or what you've heard and, and you feel like and you think that's what discipline is and I don't like it. It's not loving. God is a loving God and God would never do that. I want to encourage you. The Bible is very clear about discipline. This morning we read from Hebrews chapter 12 that God is a God who disciplines. If you turn to the back of your handout on page 13, that passage is there for you. And it says, a father devoted in love disciplines. That's the passage we read this morning in a scripture reading. That God disciplines those he loves. And if you look at this, the reason for that discipline is what? Well, verses 5 through 10, the father's disciplines in love. Don't forget, he loves you like a father he is the one who looks for you to mature. He's devoted to your maturity. He has called and purposed you. He loves you. He's made you part of his body. He wants you to grow and flourish. And many of you know this well, right? You spend much time thinking about how to have a healthier body. You spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to eat, what you're going to do, what you, how you're going to work out, how you're going to groom yourself. You think about your body all the time. And Christ thinks about his body. He purposes for it in a better way than you do. He purposes always for the best. He loves you in such a way that he disciplines. And he gives the earthly example of discipline. He thinks about his body like a father thinks about their children. He says that he disciplines us how? As a father disciplines his sons. He says if you're not disciplined, then you're not legitimately his. If he doesn't discipline you or there's no maturing in you, if there's no action in him to work for you to be more holy and more faithful, it says you are probably not his because that's what he does for his children. That's how he pursues his children. And he gives us the earthly example and reminds us, which is comforting for all fathers. He says they discipline how? As seems best to them. It says they do what seems best to them. But your father, he disciplines you always perfectly. You had earthly fathers, verse 9, who disciplined us as they thought best and we respected them. But he says you have a heavenly father who disciplines you perfectly. Don't resist his design and discipline, his love for you. 
You see, the reason for it, the reason is his love. The result of it, the faithful work of discipline, is we share in his holiness. In verse 10, it says, For they disciplined us for a short time to seem best to them, but he disciplines us. Why? For our good, that we might share in his holiness. As an earthly father, maybe like me, you often make the prayer when you're disciplining your children, God, I hope that I am doing what is right. I'm trying to figure this out. It is difficult. And I often think of this passage. He has grace on me even as a father. He's putting those situations before me for my good. And I can trust that he puts every situation with forethought and purpose because he is the good and omniscient God. He knows. Where I as a father, my kids will look back and go, man, that guy, he just messed up a lot. He didn't know what he was doing. He did what he thought was best, but that wasn't best. And then they'll have children and they'll go, man, I can't believe he tried that hard. This is so difficult. I don't know about you. That's how I feel about my dad. So we, we though, trust an earthly father. He says, trust your heavenly father who has purposed that you would be disciplined to be glorified in him. The result of discipline is always initially painful. Right? As Christians, we often talk about we rejoice in our sufferings. Yes, there is joy in that. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean we don't really suffer. It doesn't mean we pretend there is no suffering. He says, there is pain in this. It is always unpleasant for a time. But it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It accomplishes something. In verse 11, discipline is painful, but it yields the fruit of righteousness. And the response, how do you respond to discipline? God has purposed discipline for you to be healed, for you to be made holy, for you to be righteous, for there to be fruit in your life. So how do you respond to discipline? What do you do? And I love this verse, again, because I think of it often with my own children, my own childhood, and the grace of God to give us children to help us understand ourselves and where we stand before him. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, therefore, so because he is disciplining you, because of the fruit that will come for it, in verse 12 it says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What does he command? He commands us to take a posture of restoration, not destruction. He says, when God is disciplining you, the response of repentance is one that is looking to be healed. Yes, you recognize your sin. You recognize it as painful. But you are not saying, why do you keep doing this to me? You're destroying my life. I just want candy. Pound, pound. No, you can't have more candy. Literally, you've had candy all day. Oh, you hate me. No, I love you. I'm really trying to help you, right? This is me expressing to my children when they go into that action. Maybe your kids don't do this. Maybe God just gave this blessing to me so that I could see the clarity of this passage. But when I'm disciplining my kids, I know there are different responses. Very occasionally, please don't be confused about what goes on at the Dietrich house. Very occasionally have I had children pray thanking God for discipline. Have I had a child stop and go, I know daddy. Have I had a child walk into a room and go, Okay, here we go. We're doing discipline. This is what we're up. Often it looks like this. They're dragging themselves somewhere. Their knees are weak. Their arms are hanging. They're flailing about. They don't want to do this. All of my children, except Capri, because she's here this morning. She's an angel. That's not true. People aren't angels. It's all kind of bad theology in that. 
The crew needs discipline too. But he makes clear here, and you have seen the example. When you see your children doing that, what do you do? Maybe in honesty, your heart just gets more frustrated. But maybe in love, you go, we're, we're, we're continuing discipline. This isn't working. You're not seeing. You're not seeing what dad is trying to help you with. You're not understanding that I'm communicating to you because I love you. Because you can't live like that. If you keep running off the top of the fort, you're going to crack your head open. Right? You keep punching your sister, you're going to be 16 someday. You're going to punch your sister and you're going to go to jail. Because I'm going to call the cops and say, this grown man just punched this grown woman. This can't continue. Because I love you. Please stop with the weak knees and the droopy arms. And we would like to say... Praise God, we're adults, and we don't behave in such a way. When hard things come in our life, we're like, I understand what you're doing here, Lord, and I'm just going to move forward and do what I need to do. No, right? You throw a grown-up pout fit. Your spouse knows. If you're married, your spouse knows. You're like, okay, okay, pout off to the bedroom. Go ahead. Okay. You start justifying yourself, start doing all these things. We respond just like children. God has given us children to help us to understand when the truth of sin comes upon you and you feel that you have a father over you who is the judge of all things, but because he loves you, he is not coming to destroy you. He's disciplining you because he loves you. You respond and going, yes, Lord. I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to respond in how I know you have commanded in repentance. I'm going to flee that sin and in faith. I'm going to trust what you have promised that you will fulfill it in me how do you meet just the regular trials of that in life do you trust the reason because he loves you do you look forward to the result the fruit of righteousness and do you consider your response i don't want to live in such a place where i just continue resisting what god is doing i want to find how to be faithful and repentant and trust that he is doing this for a purpose that is a broad and, and vague theology uh, of discipline as a whole of why God does this. I want to point you back and I want to encourage you to read later. Uh, Hebrews 10, 26 through 39, I think really starts where, where the author of Hebrews is getting here and the Spirit of God is getting in 12. He's warning a church. He's warning a church that is lacking commitment to faithfulness. He's warning Christians that are going, you know what? There's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of hard things going on right now. Maybe we should just go be Jews again. It seems like it's going better for the Jews now. Let's not, let's not do this. It's the same God. Why not just follow the God of Judaism? It's the same Father. And the author of Hebrews compels them and works through them to show them how what God is doing in the new covenant is the same God, but he is fulfilling what he promised. You can't turn back and follow what is a mere picture of what he has accomplished. And he's warning them and pleading with them to please stop and see and recognize what God is doing and live for that. Pursue that. That is you. And then he warns them in verse 10. Defiant sin is a denial of Christ, which leads to judgment or repentance. If you continue living your life in defiant sin, we don't know the path for you. There is one of two paths. There is judgment before God because you have denied Christ in living in defiant sin. Or for Christians... There is repentance and turning from that sin. Let me just read for you Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. 
It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sancti was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And again, the Lord judges his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so he stops, and he is telling them, Remember the reality of sin. Remember, defiant sin does not meet grace. Defiant sin, set in its ways, meets the judgment of God. To live in rebellion against God is what all mankind is doing, and all mankind will end up where? At the judgment seat of God. He says, remember the Old Testament law and the clarity in which if you lived in defiant sin, there was consequences of that. And now know the truth of Christ, that he has come and he has taken you from your defiant path and drawn your heart to follow him. That he has called you and redeemed you, that you would no longer be a rebel, but you would be reconciled to God. And he says, somehow in that, if you've convinced yourself that you can just live defiantly against him as a result, that you can just live in rebellion, that you can just say, I know what God says, but this is what I want. He says, brother, you need to be terrified because you know the consequence of sin. And if you love Christ and your hope is in Christ and you have rested everything in Christ, you know that the response to what he has done isn't to say, good, I want Jesus to suffer. Good, I'm glad Jesus pays for my sin and I'm going to go on living in it. Well, that's an abuse of the gospel, not the truth of the gospel. Rather, pursue Christ. And so he reminds them, verse 32, he says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured with a hard struggle the sufferings, and sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who were tr so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, for you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What does he say? He reminds them of their covenant, their commitment, what Christ has called of their life previously. He pleads with them. Please, brother, recognize what God has done, how he has shown faithfulness to you. He gives examples to them. You have gone through things. You have lived in things because why? You are committed to Christ. Don't forget the fearful warning of Christ. If you go on living in sin and rebellion and use Christ as your personal slot machine or piggy bank thinking you're just going to get out you don't have to live for him don't be confused you once lived for him pursue him and he encourages them but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed we're those who have faith and pursue their soul pursue rather the preservation of their souls in christ what's going on in hebrews here is is really an ancient form uh, of 
church discipline, a biblical example of an author of scripture writing to a church, encouraging them in the path of church discipline to say to them that you need to repent. You cannot go on living this way. You need to place your hope in Christ. You know the consequence of sin. You cannot say, I'm just going to go on in that consequence because Jesus has paid for me because then you are making it very clear you do not love him. You are not pursuing him. Remember the former days. Remember your covenant. Remember the promise. Remember the blood of Christ that has purchased you and move forward in faith. Then he goes to Hebrews 11, which proclaims a bunch of people who are called faithful. Why are they faithful? Because God's grace to them in discipline. When you read about Abraham and Sarah and Gideon and all these people listed in the hall of faith, you recognize they were not perfectly faithful, but God progressively in grace in their life matured them in faithfulness. We see many examples of that. Why? Because he is good and faithful. It is not a hall of faith about what their faith accomplished. It is a hall of faith what the faith accomplishes because of the grace of God. And then it moves to the warning and the reminder that God disciplines in 12. So what does that mean for us? If this is the character of God, this is the nature of God, this is how he has loved his people throughout time, it's how he loves them through scripture now, what does that mean for us as a church? Well, if you look back at page 12, first, the church communicates God's loving discipline. If we look at discipline as something that never leads to excommunication or removement from the church, we are denying a lot of scripture. If we say, well, the church shouldn't do that because that's not loving, removing someone from the church, removing someone from fellowship uh, to tell them that they are not part of the body unless they repent is not loving. Uh, but the world might not see it as loving, but the God who loves and disciplines sees it as loving in great ways and commands it throughout scripture if you look at the top of that page you see in romans uh, we are told that if there is a brother who causes division and obstacles contrary to the doctrine that they've been taught what do you do you're to avoid them in first corinthians 5 2 in a matter of church discipline when a man had committed heinous things with his uh, stepmother the church is commanded to throw him out and the church is not doing that. And Paul's response to them is he says, and you are arrogant. You ought to rather mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from you. They think they're being loving by saying, hey, we can't just kick this guy out. He's been with us. And Paul is writing to them saying, the things that he is doing are not even accepted among the Gentiles. You can not continue to let him proclaim the name of Christ as part of your body, giving the appearance that this is okay, what he's doing. 1 Corinthians 5, again, Paul says he wrote in the letter not to uh, associate with sexually immoral people, and not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world, this doesn't mean you walk into Aldi this afternoon or go to a restaurant and, and you meet someone that you know is openly sexually immoral, and you go, I can't associate with that person, I can't buy things from them, I can't, I can't shop here anymore. He says, no, you'd have to leave the world to not come in contact with sinful people. What does he mean then by saying, talking about our association? Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who name, bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immoral or greed or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not, is it not those inside the church you're to judge? God judges the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
So it's very clear. When someone proclaims the name of brother, we are to be clear about what does it mean to be a brother. And if they are living in things that are directly defiant to Christ, discipline functions in such a way where we make that known. And we make clear, I, I can't, I can no longer associate if you are going to go on in this rebellious sin. Second Thessalonians, again, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you received from us. Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. It says, have nothing to do with him. If anyone doesn't obey what was written in the letter, it says, take note of them and have nothing to do with them. And the next phrase in verse 15 is very helpful. It says, do not regard them as an enemy, but as a brother. Interesting, it says, have nothing to do with them, regarding them as what? A brother. How do you regard a brother whom you can have nothing to do with? Well, I think there could be very practical ways to communicate that, but uh, uh, the most practical way I say is you, you do it in grief. You do it in tears. There are men I love who I have nothing to do with personally, functionally. At any time I have communication with them, my communication is, brother, please repent. Please repent. Live no longer in adultery, in rebellion. Please repent. And other than that, there's, there's no real association. Why? Because I love them. Because I want them to repent. Titus, it says, as for a person who stirs division, uh, after one or two warnings, have nothing more to do with him. Second John 9, 11, it says, do not receive him into your house or even give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes parts in his wicked work. What does that mean? Well, everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ is not of God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you not bringing this teaching, if they're not teaching that Jesus is who he said he is, that they are not teaching who the Father is, he says, don't even have them in your house. Don't sit down with them and be hospitable. If they are claiming the name of Christ and denying the name of Christ, you ought to make clear where you live with them. And that is distantly pleading for their repentance. The most important passage for us on a practical level is Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Again, it's on your handout. If you look with me at verse, uh, starting at verse 17, it's on page 12 of your handout. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let, it be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I want to show you four things from this passage about church discipline on a regular basis. All those other passages really are church discipline passages. And if you look at our doctrinal statement, it works through uh, particular circumstances of church discipline. How do we deal with divisive teachers, false teachers, things like that? There's more extreme handling than just Matthew 18, right? In the same way, if my child's walking in the street, I will slowly respond, hey, you, you can't just walk into the street, son. You need to stay with me. There's cars coming. It's dangerous, right? If my child is running toward the street and there's a Mack truck on the road, my response is going to be slightly different. 
Because it's not just a warning of what could happen, it is stopping what is about to happen. And so there are times that church discipline is not necessarily Matthew 18 uh, when it comes to the case of false teachers. But in Matthew 18, we have what would be the regular practice of church discipline as a church. The regular function of us together. And so as you think about this passage, verses 15 through 17, I first want to point to your attention, your personal responsibility in church discipline. Your personal responsibility in church discipline. It says, if your brother sins against you, go alone. If your brother sins against you, go alone and tell him his fault. Notice how this changes how we think about sin. Generally, we think if someone sins against us, what are they supposed to do? They are to recognize how holy I am and how sinful they are and come groveling to me. They're to go, I'm so sorry I sinned against you. There's an arrogant stance to this. We are assuming uh, that we are so holy like God that people would immediately recognize their sin against us. No, all mankind recognizes his sins against God, uh, and, and that weighs on them. That's what Romans 1 teaches. But it is often difficult to recognize your sin in the face of men. Why? Because men are sinful too. So you quickly and easily justify yourself. My behavior was fine. Because you're just looking at them. You're just thinking about them. Right? God puts the burden of responsibility not on the one who has committed the sin, but the one who has sinned against. He says, if your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault. It's you taking the responsibility to love your brother who is living in sin. Now, this does not mean you just go sinning against people all the time and you go, hey, it's not my job to clear up my sin. It's their job. They got to come tell me. I'm just going to keep living in sin. And if they're real Christians, they'll come tell me about it. No, that's, yes, that is not a Christian heart, right? No, that is not the way we, we long to live. But we also can't sit at home and feel as though this person has sinned against me, they've done this against me, and I, I just, I'm just going to sit here and, and become bitter with them. I'm going to distance my relationship with them. I'm going to just have nothing to do with them. No, you're, you're jumping to an extreme that God has not called you to. What has he called you to do? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Notice it also doesn't say you call your pastor and you ask him, hey, Joe did this real heinous thing, and I just wanted to get some clarity for you. Let me elaborate on what he did real quick. Blah, 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 blah. What do you think I should do? I know those calls are going to come. I know they're not malicious at times. I know you've called one another doing that thing. Right, you, you call and you gossip a little bit uh, because you're trying to figure things out in your heart. You're trying to wrestle through it. Let me help you. Let, let me help you to have the word of God direct your heart. When you are feeling sinned against and you cannot get over it, the word of God has been clear to you. Go and talk to that person alone. Make it known to them. There's clear responsibility in the church not to let sin go undealt with. And it's important for your heart not to let it go undealt with. If you know that this is not something that you're able to let go, it's frustrating you and it keeps coming to your mind, I would encourage you that is God wanting to work on your heart and their heart. This does not mean every morning you have to approach like six people because you're offended all the time. We live in an offense-driven society, right? So God says very clearly, it's in your handout, Proverbs 19, 11, good sense once makes one slow to anger. 
and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Just because someone's offended you doesn't mean you have to go after everyone all the time, right? But some of us, many of us, that's not our issue. We're not always going to people saying we're offended. We're always offended by people and we're rarely going to anyone. And we just become bitter and isolationists in our heart. We are separating ourselves relationally when that is not God's call for you. It's to love one another for the unity of the body. So you go and you go alone. You communicate, they're sent to them. You look at Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount and it says you want to take the log out of your own eye. You want to have clarity. What is the sin that's been committed against me? This is, I think, a good practice. It's not always easy to do, but to look at the Word of God and say, what is the sin that they have committed against me? It says if your brother sins against you, right? It's not if your brother wears clothing that is offensive to you. It's not if, if your brother drinks something that's offensive to you. It's not if your brother uses slang in such a way that's offensive to you. It's not if your brother watches TV and you have repented of such paganism. No, you, you need to have a clear defining of sin. You need to say, this is, this is what is common, and go to them alone and talk to them. That's a good way to deal with your heart. It helps you to see, do I just need to look over something that offended me, or is there actual sin here that needs to be addressed? So you go to your brother, and you go to him alone. Second, number two, verse 15b. It says, between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The, the purpose of church discipline. Notice it right there in that first verse. It is not to, uh, to alleviate your own frustration. Church discipline is not about venting. It's not that you just have things on your heart that you need to get out. Go to God in prayer. You know, talk to other people about your issues in your heart, but you don't vent about other people's issues. Your goal is not to vent about how they offend you. Your goal is to reconcile with brothers, to clarify sin and to pursue together to glorify Christ. So you go with the intention of gaining your brother. And there's other passages there that would encourage the same uh, that if your brother is caught in sin, what are you to do? You who are spiritual, you who are thinking rightly in the spirit of gentleness, you go and you want to draw them back. But you need to be aware of yourself, lest you are too tempted towards sin. You bear their burden, purposed in Christ, not just your offense. Colossians 3.16, you want to do so with the word. You are commanded to do this. We've discussed it many times in the membership series. But you're to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? that you might teach one another. And when you have these opportunities in life together, as you are close together, you're going to sin against one another. There's going to be times where you're going to go to one another in a casual way. This doesn't always have to be big and intense, but privately to say, hey, I just wanted to talk to you about this situation. Uh, it, it appeared sinful to me. Can we discuss it, right? Maybe it's a bigger issue where you need to sit down and, and really have a, a more detailed conversation. But the purpose of discipline is restoration next the preservation of the church in discipline the preservation of the church notice the ongoing statements of if 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 this clause is set up to say if this doesn't then this if this doesn't then this if this doesn't then this what's going on here well this is how i describe this uh, this passage as small as possible as long as possible god is not looking to flaunt your sin before the world he does not want to humiliate you. He wants to humble you. He wants you to respond faithfully. 
And you also should not look to humiliate other Christians, but you do want to humble them. You want to bring the word of God to them that they can live in faith and repentance. And you see that through this passage. What does he say? Go to them alone, just you and them. Then what do you do? You bring one or two witnesses. These are not defense lawyers, right? What does it say? It doesn't say bring one or two advocates of your position. It says bring one or two witnesses to witness the confrontation. And so you should find godly people, men or women, who you trust and they trust and say, can you come with me? I, I met with this person to talk about sin and, and they don't think they've sinned. I think they have. Uh, there's frustration. We're, we're not able to deal with this. Uh, can you come and help us? That's all the detail of conversation that's needed. And then they can witness what is going on. They can come and they can help to decipher because at times what will happen is you'll sit down and they'll say, no, I don't think they've sinned against you. And this is an opportunity for you to grow. They say, no, there, there's not real clarity in scripture. And I understand that this regularly offends you, but uh, maybe we can address that and deal with that. And so these witnesses are not your defense attorneys to go to your court case to find your brother guilty. Uh, these are your brothers coming with you because you've not been able to handle it alone and you want reconciliation. And you trust the body of Christ to help you. This does not have to be elders. This, just is, this does not have to be ministry leaders. Often those people will be those who come because you love and trust them and they love and trust them. This is any, any Christian who is faithful that they love and trust, you love and trust, that could be a help to you in this. And the preservation of it, then it does continue to grow, right? It doesn't remain just that. If there are the witnesses, there is sin. This is still going on. What does it say? Then you take it to the church. So now this is going to become a more clear church event. So it would go to elders and elders would discuss with you. And then the church at some point would be informed. And we're going to pursue together the repentance of that person. So for us, this would happen at a church membership meeting. It would happen with those people who have covenanted together to pursue Christ in a seriousness and a faithfulness. And so if we have a disciplinary issue, unless it is a leader um, that has done something, because there's commands on that, that elders are to be rebuked publicly. Uh, but unless it was a leader, it would be something that would be dealt with privately as members. It's not a public event. Our church services on Sunday mornings are public events. Many people come who aren't part of our church necessarily. They visit. They could come. They could see our sign off, off the side of the road. We're not here to publicly broadcast sin. As a church family, we are here to pursue to reconcile. And so we would make it known to the church that this man or woman is living in sin. Uh, they are defiant in it. They refuse to repent. And we are continuing to pursue them. And we want to encourage you to pursue them also. The final step, keeping as small as possible, as long as possible, uh, would be the preservation or the purity, rather, of church discipline. The purity of church discipline is let him be to you. You could look back at those passages we read, that there is an action taken by the church. And some people call this tough love, which I think could be confusing. And they call it other things. Uh, but what is really going on is that God is proclaiming you are choosing a path of rebellion rather than repentance. And the path of rebellion shows a heart that does not love Christ. And so as a loving father, I am warning you. And how is he warning them? The weight of God will be over them. The spirit of God will be working them. But we want to assist as part of the body to say we recognize the wound here. We recognize what's going on here. We don't want you to live like that. We've had very few times as, as a church 
as Faith Bible Marietta, and then in Menifee, very few times where, uh, as a church, this step is required. Uh, but when it is, it is not joyful. It is not something anybody's excited about doing. It's painful. It is heart-wrenching. It is similar to the discipline of your own children. And church discipline in this way has often been communicated as unloving. And every time we've ever had to move forward in that path, the elders and others have been accused of being unloving, have been accused of being all kinds of things that aren't glorifying to Christ. This is, this is not an easy position to take. It's a painful position. It comes with slander and, and people speaking against us and anger toward us. And it makes it hard not because of that slander, but because when, when it comes to this, these aren't random generic people on the street. These are people we love. Please don't be confused about my emotion. I'm confused. I wasn't planning to be emotional. Uh, but it is not that I'm concerned about the slander which comes toward us because of this. I'm concerned about the souls that have departed from us and left because they want to pursue the world more than they want Christ. We long for them to repent and we are willing to be slandered willing to be shamed, willing to have those mock us. And we trust that God is, is disciplining us in the same sense, to humble us, to keep us in seeking to honor and glorify Him. But there are extreme cases where there is sin that is unrepentant of, sin that people will not give up, and we are commanded as a church to love them by communicating uh, that we will no longer have anything to do with you. Many churches communicate this, and in, in what that means is you will no longer participate in the functions of the church, uh, primarily being baptism and communion, that you're removed from these things, that you, you, don't, you don't participate in them. Different churches make different decisions in that. Uh, ours would be that, that we would communicate with people if, if you were continuing to communicate that you are rebelling against Christ. Uh, then you should not be here for fellowship and, and recognizing that their heart longs to be here sometimes. They want to be uh, for some reason, but not for the reason of purity. And sometimes it's for the reason of slander. Most often when this type of discipline comes about, those people are already bailing. They don't want to be here. They, they don't want to face people that know their sin now. Uh, they assume everyone knows their sin, though we seek to preserve as, as small as possible and just communicating to members. Uh, often this, this turns in, in frustration and rebellion for them as it does in you if you are unwilling to repent. But as a church, uh, we believe in the personal responsibility of church discipline. Uh, that you as members should be those who take sin seriously enough to be willing to address it with one another on occasion. Right? To be willing to confront one another. We take sin seriously enough to say, uh, that we are willing to have that type of discipline together, to function as a body that makes clear uh, when our arm or finger or hand is c communicating that they hate the body and they deny Christ, uh, that we will make it clear. We seek to be a church that preserves through discipline. Again, the, the steps of this are always intentional, as small as possible, as long as possible. We're not trying to make public people sin. We're trying to privately reconcile sin because Christ is the payer of sin. He is the one that has redeemed his people. We don't need to broadcast to make people pay for what they did. Uh, we need to call people to repentance that they will trust Christ. 
because of what he has done. And then lastly, the purity of the church. We, we cannot as a church, and it has too often gone on in our time and our country, that rather than to communicate clearly about what is sin, we have just moved the line of sin for God. We have told God, no, you're, you're too harsh about that. We're going to pull the line back and say that's okay. Christians, we personally have done this with things like slander and gossip and, and petty theft. We think that's fine. They don't deal with those things. The church as a whole, many who would claim to be churches now are doing this with things like sexual morality and gender roles and, and homosexuality. We cannot be those who are willing to say, God's not loving if he doesn't agree with us. We must be those who say, God is a God of love, and we must devote ourselves to the definition of love, God. And so it is our prayer as elders that you would understand not only the process of membership, uh, but the purpose of membership, our direction as a church, our doctrine as a church, and our devotion to the believers of the church. Uh, that we want to love one another well. That we are willing to love one another through the joyful times that we share often in fellowship and friendship and through the most difficult times of life in grief and loss and even in calling one another to repentance. Uh, so what can at times be a very difficult doctrine, I pray uh, you were encouraged this morning that it is rooted in the Word of God uh, and that you would give time and, and thought to look through that. If you're wrestling with these things, don't worry. Uh, God has been clear and he continues to communicate the truth through his word. Uh, we are happy to answer questions. I know I did not deal with every issue I could have when it comes to discipline, but more on a broad scale. Uh, and so as we conclude the membership series, I want to encourage you again, come and talk to elders, talk to leaders, talk to one another about this. Pursue uh, to understand what God's call is to the body. And if you would, if you would say Faith Bible Ministry is your home, we would encourage you to join in membership, uh, to define your relationship to Christ as part of his church, living for the purposes of Christ. I want to thank you for your endurance uh, through these messages and uh, for your willingness to commit your time and your efforts. I, I know as many times in our church, uh, the preacher is long-winded. It's one of the distinctives of our church. Uh, but... This is a more trying time with children and, and everyone here and meeting outside. Uh, but I'm thankful that God has in his divine providence given us opportunity to discuss these things together. Uh, and it is our prayer that you would not now just move on and wait for Ephesians to start again. But if you are a member, you would consider the commitments you have made and remain faithful in those. And if you're not a member, you would consider the truth of what God has called the church to be. Uh, and be, be in a church where you can be a member, whether that be here with us or someone else. We want you to be faithfully plugged in and part of a local church. So let me pray that God would continue to be faithful uh, as we trust not my words on a Sunday morning, but his word, always faithful, to guide us in the grace of his son. Father, we thank you for your grace and faithfulness. And we thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace this morning as we have uh, sought, as I've sought, Lord, and, and prepared to proclaim truth from your word on issues that are, are dear to you and are uh, your design and love for us. I pray, Father, by your spirit, you would use uh, the frailness and the failure of my words to sanctify and love the hearts of your people. I pray you would help us to grow as a church that 
uh, as every membership meeting is and even now gathering together uh, would just be a sweet memory of our commitment uh, in what you have called us to in your grace and committing us to your son i pray father that this would be a sweet memory uh, now on earth as we continue to pursue you in forever and eternity of the grace that you have shown us it's in christ's name we pray